Uh, okay, if you have your um, Harmony of the Gospel, we're looking at paragraph 61 and 62 this evening. And I wanted to take... Thanks, Clint. I wanted to take a few, a, a little bit more time with this because these sections are two of the most critical, perhaps the most critical uh, segments in the life of Messiah, covering, covered by Mark's account in chapter 3 and Matthew's account chapter 12. Now on your outlines, uh, by the way, in, in our textbook, The Harm of the Gospel, it's on page 61. But in the outline, it's uh, Roman numeral 3, which is entitled, The Controversy Over the King. And we're looking at letter E, the rejection of the king by the leaders of the Jewish people in, at that time, at the time of Yeshua. And this is point one, which deals with the unpardonable sin, which is covered by Mark's account in chapter 3, Matthew's account in chapter 12, and in the harmony it is paragraph 61. Now, while Mark and Matthew record the events at this time, Matthew will give us uh, quite a bit more details. If you have your harmony, you look at Matthew's account, verses 22 through 37, it's quite extensive. On the other hand, if you look at Mark's account, verses 19 through 30, you'll see it doesn't take up quite as much time and space in the recording of these particular, this particular event. In Matthew's account, we're given more t details because remember the purpose for which he's writing. He's writing for the Jewish people and he wants to demonstrate that Yeshua is Israel's Messiah. And he wants to focus on how the Jewish people are responding to him. And his message to them is he is the Messiah of Israel, the king of the Jewish people. Mark's account, of course, written for the Romans, is a much more swift, compact kind of a recording. And while it is true that Matthew's account gives us more details, let's just take a look at Mark's account for a moment because there are two observations that we can make that are pretty interesting to take a look at. If you look at Mark chapter 3 verse 19, it says, He comes into a house, the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. It was, there was, so, it was so crowded. And look at verse 21. And when his friends heard it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, he is beside himself. It's a very interesting passage. So those who are Messiah's friends and have been with him regularly notice something different has taken place. And they misinterpret the situation, thinking even that Messiah is manifesting something of, we might uh, describe as insanity. For they said, this is how they perceived him, he is beside himself. So, something different has occurred. Matthew 12 will give us a little bit more insight into why that difference has occurred. But in Mark's account, he tells us that his friends and disciples thought there was something wrong with Messiah. In verse 22, it says, And the scribes, which came, in Mark chapter 3, And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils, he casts out the devils. We're going to come to Matthew's account who records that. But notice verse 22, the first part, in which it says, And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem. Notice, first of all, how directions are given in Israel. You always go down from Jerusalem or up to Jerusalem. 
So it doesn't matter whether you go north, south, east, and west. If you left Jerusalem, you're always going down from Jerusalem. In fact, they are in Galilee, so they're actually north of Jerusalem. But when they leave Jerusalem, they don't say they go up to Galilee, which might be the way we would speak of it because it's north. They went down to Galilee. Or even if they went east, they would have gone down to the Jordan River. Or if they went west, they would have gone down to the Mediterranean. Or if they went to Jerusalem, they, uh, to Egypt, they would have gone down to Egypt. That, make, that makes more sense to us. And that's because Jerusalem is the center. Everything, all directions go f- are, are characterized from that city. So when you leave Jerusalem, you're going down. If you're going to Jerusalem, you're always going up to Jerusalem. Now, it's also true Jerusalem is on a hill. It's on Mount Zion. It's on Mount Moriah. But it's not merely geographical terminologies when it speaks of going up and going down. Because in Jerusalem is where the worship of God took place in the temple. You're going up into the presence of God. You're going down from that presence. It's sort of the idea. So notice Mark's account records that same Jewish uh, terminology. And in Mark mentions that scribes came down from Jerusalem. So, now, what's going on here is that while the events take place in Galilee, they are interrogated by the scribes that came from Jerusalem, which is a three-day journey. So, the period of interrogation now is complete. Remember with, as we looked at John, when John begins his ministry, the first thing that's sent out is an observation party from the leadership in Jerusalem. They do not interact with John. They don't ask him, what are you doing? Why is this going on? They just go and they observe. And they notice that John was calling Jewish people to be baptized or immersed. That was contrary to Jewish tradition and teaching. Jews did not need to be immersed. Gentiles needed to be immersed because if they converted to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob one of the processes by which a Gentile became a formal convert to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob or became a formal proselyte to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was by means of baptism. And so in Judaism, there, in the first century and even today, there is what is known as God-fearers. So these are Gentiles that recognize the gods of the Gentiles are no gods and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the true God. Cornelius is referred to in the book of Acts as a God-fearer. But he's not a proselyte. A proselyte is one that has gone through the complete stages of conversion to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Cornelius simply acknowledged the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that was the extent of his commitment. Thus, from the Jewish point of view, he's a God-fearer. Now, if he went to the second stage where he went through baptism... He would then become a proselyte at the gate. The idea was that this was a Gentile who had gone through the second stage of conversion to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and was thought of as sitting outside the beautiful gate of the temple. He can't enter into the temple yet. He's still not fully converted, but he's closer to the temple uh, entering in than, say, the God-fearer. So they refer to him as a proselyte at the gate. Then if he went through the third stage, 
of commitment to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he would submit to baptism and circumcision. And at that point, he would have been a full-blown proselyte permitted to enter into the temple and to even enter into the court of the Israelites. Remember how the temple was divided. You had the court of the Israelites, the court of the women, and then outside the uh, entrance gate was the court of the Gentiles. So a God-fearer was sort of thought of as being in the court of the Gentiles near proximity to the worship of the true God. A proselyte at the gate is not just merely in the court of the Gentiles, but he's at the gate to enter into the court of the women, which then would, be, would lead the way to the court of the, of the Israelites. Everybody's familiar with how the temple was constructed, right? And then if he went through the third stage, submitting to baptism and circumcision, then he became a full-blown proselyte and was afforded all the benefits that a Jewish man would have had. And thus he is now a convert to Judaism and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So now, hold on one minute, Mitch. So now, what's going on here in Mark, or in John's case, as I was mentioning, he was calling Jews to be baptized unto repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Jewish observing party that came from Jerusalem to observe John would have gone back to the leaders in the Sanhedrin and said, what John is doing is significant. We need to watch this man because he's breaking with our tradition. He's calling people, our own people to repent. He's immersing our own people unto repentance. We only do that to Gentiles. Why is he doing that with Jews? And he's further saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's saying, Messiah is coming. Now, the next time the party goes out, they're not just an observing party. They're now an interrogating party. And they start questioning John. And John now reacts to them, as we saw in the early part of the uh, gospel record. And now they know that John is a person of consideration and they need to do something with him because he's not submitting to their leadership. Now, as I said before, one of the themes in the account of the life of Messiah is what happens to the herald, John's the herald, happens to the king. So in the same way, they earlier had sent out an observation party to Yeshua to watch what he is doing. And they don't question him. As he uh, communicates the first message John has. Repent. That's Yeshua's first message too. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now during the course of his ministry, which has gone on now for over two years, now they have begun to question him. And now in chapter Mark 3, Matthew 12, paragraph 61, the interrogation is completed and a decision is going to be reached with respect, who is Yeshua in our book? What do we think of him? Do we acknowledge him to be Messiah as he's claiming? Or do we now reject him? So when we read in Math, Mark's account, verse 22, that uh, a period of, of interrogation has occurred. These scribes come down from Jerusalem. They are questioning him. So they have now come to the point where they've reached their decision. And now they're looking for a public opportunity to make their decision known. And the event that they use to make their decision known that they do not acknowledge Yeshua as the Messiah and that he is to be rejected will involve his casting out of a demon 
that causes an individual to be both blind and mute. Okay? So that's what's going on here in Matthew. They moved our microphones, Mitch. I didn't mention that. I forgot. Okay. It's not what? No. Um, but it's... I'm not sure exactly the moment in which that threefold process of conversion had, had surfaced. But perhaps with Babylon, I'm not really sure, but where Gentiles begin to uh, connect with the Jewish people and begin to consider the truths of the scripture, they're looking for a mechanism by which they can be counted as one of uh, members of the household of Israel. And if by the first century, this has emerged. Right. That I don't think there's anything that we know of in the Hebrew Scriptures, but certainly the Hebrew Scriptures are revealing that there are righteous Gentiles. And Yeshua himself is going to speak about things. Certainly during the time of Noah, you got the whole uh, Nineveh, You've got Jonah, you've got the whole city of Nineveh uh, turns to the true God and God accepts them, right? Or Naaman the Syrian, whom, uh, uh, you know, Elisha uh, makes provision for him to be healed. These are righteous Gentiles, you know, and, and others perhaps. So, uh, you know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, we see he comes to know God, right? Cyrus, yeah. So, okay, so in Mark's account, the scribes have come up. They're looking now for an opportunity to make their decision regarding the rejection of Messiah, Yeshua as Messiah, to be a public statement. So now take a look at Matthew chapter 12. The thing that propels this is Yeshua's casting out of this particular uh, demon. In verse 22 through 24, Then was brought unto Yeshua one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him, insomuch that the dumb man spake and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Is this the son of David? So first of all, a demon causes an individual to be both blind and mute. Now the act of casting out demons in the Jewish world at that time was not unusual. Yeshua himself says, If I cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub, how do your children do it? Now, the word children doesn't mean little people, young people. It means, how do your disciples do it? How do those who follow you uh, go about doing this? What Yeshua is admitting to is that the Jewish people of his day had been engaged in casting out of demons. So, in the first century, this was not unusual. Um, so, this was not unusual. And it is made reference to as such here in this passage. So, the Pharisees... And their disciples were practicing the casting out of evil spirits. But the Jewish or Pharisaical ritual by which an evil spirit was cast out of an individual involved three phases or three stages. So here they are. First of all, one would establish communication with the demon. And that meant that the demon, using the vocal apparatus of the individual, would speak to the person 
who was attempting now to cast him out. The second stage was, he would then uh, need to find out the demon's name. And by means of naming the demon, begin the process, number three, of casting the demon out. So, in Mark 5, by the way, or I think it's chapter 5, Yeshua does do this. And you remember when he heals the man of Gadara, he says, you know, who are you? And the evil spirits that had uh, possessed this man who would be cutting himself and who was chained in the cemetery or whatever, roaming around in, in uh, Gadara, it says that Yeshua said, who are you? And the demons responded to him. Of course, they don't ignore him. They respond to him immediately. Even when they come into his presence, uh, they acknowledge that he is the king, king, king of Israel. And always, Yeshua will say, be silent, don't say anything, because he doesn't want the testimony of evil spirits. But in this instance, when he says, who are you? They say, we are legion, for we are many. And then on the basis of the name of the demon, he casts them out, and the demons are forced to go into a whole... Uh, I don't know what you call it, herd of pigs. I, I don't know if herd's the right term. But a whole thing of pigs. And they run over the cliff and into the Sea of Galilee. So Yeshua, on one occasion at least, does utilize this rabbinic, if we can call it that, Jewish method. But he doesn't do that here. And so what he does here is, uh, and the rabbis acknowledge this, that the one kind of demon they would have difficulties with, indeed go beyond difficulty, but would not be able to cast out, would be a demon that would cause the individual not to be able to speak. Because by not being able to speak, they couldn't get the demon's name, and thus they couldn't cast that demon out of the individual. So because the individual couldn't speak, there was no way to establish communication with it, and thus there was no way to cast it out. So the Pharisees, on the basis of this reality, taught that when the Messiah came, he would not be so limited, and thus he would be able to cast out a demon that caused someone to be mute, because he doesn't need to have the names of demons in order to do that. Thus, the healing or casting out of a demon that caused someone to be mute came to be understood as a messianic miracle. And thus we've seen one other messianic miracle in the life of Messiah so far. And that was when he healed a leper. Remember, we mentioned that in the, the law, there was certain requirement that the high priest and the leper had to go through when a leper was healed of leprosy. And it covers, uh, I think, a complete or couple of chapters in the book of Leviticus. And yet, throughout the entire record of the Hebrew Scriptures, we have no record of a Jewish person being healed of leprosy and fulfilling that law in the law of Moses. So Miriam, for example, is healed of leprosy, but that's before the law is instituted. And Naaman the Syrian is healed of leprosy, told to dip seven times in the Jordan River, but he's a Gentile, so he doesn't have to fulfill the requirements of the law. So all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, they have this very elaborate uh, regulations regarding a Jew who is healed of leprosy that is never recorded as being, uh, being utilized. Until we get to the Brit HaDashah, the New Testament records, and Yeshua does heal Jewish men of leprosy. On one occasion, he'll heal ten men 
of leprosy, one of whom's a Samaritan, the one alone who comes back and thanks him, but the other nine have to fulfill what is recorded in the book of Leviticus. So what did they have to do? They had to go to the high priest. They had to explain to the high priest how they were lepers. They had to explain to the high priest how they were healed. They then had to submit themselves to a very rigorous inspection by the high priest over a period of days. At the end of which certain offerings would be offered and the high priest would publicly and officially proclaim the leper healed of his leprosy. In effect, Yeshua, when he was healing the leper, was forcing the high priest to acknowledge his messiahship. Because every time he says he's clean, and every time he says, how has it happened? Oh, Yeshua of Nazareth healed me. Well, the high priest is in effect acknowledging the messiahship of Yeshua. Indirectly, but nevertheless acknowledging it. Thus, the healing of a leper was not merely a healing miracle. It was a messianic miracle because it was uniquely a sign and symbol of the Messiah's presence. Another messianic miracle is the healing of one who is caused to be deaf, uh, excuse me, mute, by a demon. Because one could not get the demon's name because he caused the individual to be mute and thus the rabbis couldn't heal this man. So they said, aha, a sign and symbol that the Messiah is among us is he'll heal such an individual of such a malady caused by demon because he will not be so restricted as to need the, the demon's name. So now what happens here is Yeshua performs a messianic miracle. Not just a healing miracle. It is a healing, but it's more than that. It's meant to demonstrate his messiahship as the rabbi said the messiah would so demonstrate himself to be. And that's why the response you read in verse 24 is not what one typically reads in the other miracles that have preceded this. The other miracles that preceded this cause the question, by what authority have you healed this man? By what authority do you teach these things? In this healing, they don't ask that question. The question the people ask is, is this not the Messiah? In other words, you've been teaching us that the Messiah would be the one who would heal someone of a demon that would cause a person to be mute. So is this not the Messiah? They don't ask by what authority. They simply are asking the leadership to make a statement regarding the Messiahship of Yeshua. And in fact, the way they frame the question is, he is the Messiah, right? We finally found him. This is the guy. And so now the leadership has to uh, make a response. Now here's another interesting theme that comes up throughout the biblical record regarding the Jewish people. You'll always find in the scriptures that with respect to the Jewish people as a whole, that they generally do not think for themselves. The Jewish leadership, uh, excuse me, the Jewish people always follow the Jewish leaders of their day. So the people are looking for the leaders to answer the question for them. Is this not the Jewish Messiah? They don't say, this is the Jewish Messiah, let's worship him. They're looking for the leaders to direct them. And that's why the prophets, or God, through the prophets, 
Oftentimes, the phrase you see it in Jeremiah and Ezekiel quite often is the statement that these are shepherds that scatter the sheep. They'll speak about these are false shepherds, false teachers that scatter the sheep. Rarely do you read of the sheep, Israel, op, uh, making decisions contrary to their leaders. Only, the only time you see that is with the faithful remnant. When a small number of Jewish people remain faithful to God or faithful to the words of the prophets, there's 6,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. All the others are bowing their knee to Baal because they're following the lead of their leaders. And when Israel has bad leaders, they act badly. If the kings of Israel are wicked, the people fall prey to idolatry, human sacrificing, and the rejection of God. If their leaders are righteous, like David or Solomon or Josiah, you find the people are, for the most part, experiencing revivals. Josiah particularly. But, people change, but the people change. The point is, this is one of those themes of Israel as sheep that follow their shepherds. And if they're good shepherds, they follow. If they're bad shepherds, they follow. And by the way, that same syndrome affects the Jewish people today. Because how often have we not heard, or how often have we heard, that when we've shared with Jewish people, what is the response? When we say to the Jewish person, Yeshua is the Messiah, here's where it is, and their response is, if Yeshua is the Messiah, how come so many of our people don't obey him? If he's really the Messiah, how come the majority of Jewish people reject him? And of course our response is, that's the way Israel has always been. That the majority have followed leaders that have led the people astray. And today, the majority of Israel, the Jewish people's, quote-unquote, leaders, are not walking faithfully before the Lord. So you see the same thing happening here. Is this not the, uh, the son of David? Which is another way of saying, is this not the Messiah? In other words, this is a leadership crisis that plagues Israel then, plagued Israel in the Old Testament period, plagued them here during the first century with Yeshua, and has continued to plague our people until Messiah, the Good Shepherd, will lead them fully as a nation unto himself. One day they will. So the Pharisees now, the Jewish leaders at this time, have only one of two options they can make. When the people say, is this not the son of David? They could have chosen to do one of two things. First, they could have chosen to proclaim Yeshua to be the Jewish Messiah. They could have said, yes he is. He's done exactly what we said Messiah would be expected to do. But they don't want to do this because Yeshua has rejected Pharisaical traditionalism. Remember one of the other themes we saw. What happens to the herald happens to the king. We saw the same sort of unfolding of events in which the Jewish leaders attack John. They're going to attack Yeshua. When they attacked John, they said the reason why they rejected John was because he had a demon. The real reason they rejected John was because John would not submit to Pharisaical teaching and leadership. 
The reason they're going to give for rejecting Messiah is because he has a demon. The real reason is he's rejected Pharisaical leadership and Pharisaical teaching and the traditionalism of the Jewish leaders of his day. So the first thing they could have done was say, he is the Messiah. But they're not going to do that because they know that he has rejected their teachings of uh, the scripture. And you see that in the Sermon on the Mount. So the second option they have is they can reject the Messianic claims of Messiah. When they say, is this not the son of David? They can say, no, he's not. But if they do this, then they have to explain how it is that he healed this man of a demon that caused him not to be able to speak. Which the Pharisees have been teaching is a sign of the Messiah. So if they choose to say he's not the Messiah, they have to explain what happened. So what the Jewish leaders decide to do is they opt for the second option, reject Messiah's claim, and then to somehow explain away the Messianic miracle. So what they do is that they claim he is himself possessed. So if you look at verse 24, when the Jewish leaders heard it, they said, this man does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Notice how important that is. What they're saying is that Yeshua is not merely possessed by a common demon, but by Beelzebub, who is the prince of demons. So that's why he could do such an amazing miracle as this. It's not just a normal demon he's possessed with. He's possessed with the prince of demons. Now, the name that is given is that of Beelzebub. Originally, Beelzebub was Beelzebul, which means the lord of the royal palace. And it referred to one of the Philistine gods in the pantheon of gods that the Philistines worshipped. The rabbis began to mock these gods. And when they did, they changed their names. Remember like in Hanukkah, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. He named himself Epiphanes, which means the glorious one. But the Jewish people, the leaders, renamed him Antiochus Epimenes. Because you remember what he did was he uh, pillaged the temple, set up a false god, image of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. So they renamed him, not Antiochus Epiphanes, the glorious one, but Antiochus Epimenes, Antiochus the madman, the crazy one. So they did a similar thing with Beelzebub. Originally, Beelzebub, Bull, mean the lord of the royal palace. They changed his name from Beelzebub to Beelzebub, which means he's the lord of the flies. And of course, flies, you know, hovering around garbage and all of that. So he was the lord of, of the flies. That's what they accuse Jesus of being possessed by. So now this moment, that's why this is such a critical passage. This moment becomes the basis for the pharisaical rejection of Yeshua as the Messiah. They did not reject Yeshua because he didn't deliver them from Rome. They rejected Messiah because he would not submit to their leadership. And in fact, rejected their leadership. And thus now, as a result, they reject him as Messiah. It has nothing to do with Rome. It has everything to do with an in-house conversation and debate over whether or not the Pharisees were interpreting the scripture properly. And Yeshua say, no, they weren't. I am the Messiah who has come. They've rejected him. And the reason for that is because Yeshua would not submit to their leadership. So they accused him of being demon-possessed. By the way, in the Talmud, where Yeshua is mentioned, and there are some references to him, the same accusation is made. 
in one passage, it is spoken about the reason why Yeshua was executed on Passover. That was contrary to Jewish law. There are a number of, I'm not talking about Old Testament law, I'm talking about rabbinic law. There are many laws that were broken by the Jewish leaders during the trial and execution of Messiah. Something like 40-something uh, of them. Not to be trialed at night, can't be, um, you know, a certain number of witnesses need to come forward. There are all kinds of violations. And when the Jewish uh, leaders, when the question is raised, so why is it that Yeshua was executed on Passover, which was contrary to one of the laws? They said, the answer is given, what was the nature of his crime? And the answer is given, he seduced Israel by practicing sorcery. So because he was of the accusation of him being possessed by a demon, they felt it was legitimate to uh, not adhere to their own laws regarding the execution of him because his crime was so heinous. And um, so... The, the point, though, however, is they are publicly and officially and in representation of the nation, so nationally, rejecting Yeshua as Messiah. So in, but the interesting thing here is, in no instance do, do they deny the fact of his miracles. There are too many witnesses to do that. Instead, they attribute the miracle to a demonic source. Now... So the reason given for rejecting Yeshua is that he became demon-possessed. That's the given reason. The real reason is, of course, his lack of submission to the Jewish leaders of his day. Now, in verses 25 through 29 of Matthew's account, Yeshua then provides his defense. And he gives four points in his defense. Verse 25. In 25 and 26, it says, And knowing their thoughts... He said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? So the first thing Messiah says is the accusation can't be true because it would mean a division in Satan's kingdom and then his kingdom could not stand. The second thing he mentions is in verse 27. And if I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons or your followers cast them out? He says, the second thing he says is that they themselves recognize that the gift of casting out demons was a gift from God. And thus to attribute what they've recognized as a gift from God to the evil one is not consistent with their own teaching. Because he's not making the uh, muteness worse. He's resolved the mutinous. The third thing he mentions in verse 28 is, if I by the Spirit of God cast out demons, then is the kingdom of God come to you. So Yeshua is saying, the miracle is in reality authenticating my message that I am the Messiah. And wherever the king is, there is a manifestation of some degree of his kingdom. And thus, a manifestation of his kingdom is the healing of disease. And so this, or in this case, the, the uh, casting out of an evil spirit. So when good things occur, it's a manifestation of God's kingdom's presence. It's not the entirety of his kingdom, 
but it's something of it. It's a foretaste of it. And thus, if there's a taste of the kingdom, it must be because the king is present as well. And then lastly, in verse 29, he says, Or how can one enter into the house of the strong man and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man? The fact that he healed this individual, cast out the demon. Remember, the demon was cast out, not merely the individual healed, right? Here, there was an overthrow of an evil being, a demon. And so thus, he shows that he's stronger than Satan, not subservient to him. So contrary to being possessed by by a demon, he has just destroyed a demon. So he's stronger than the demon, not possessed by it. That's his argument. So in verse 30 through 37, Yeshua then announces a special judgment on that generation of Israel for being guilty of a very unique sin. The unpardonable sin or the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So what happens, okay? Yeshua is in Galilee. The Jewish leaders come up or down from Jerusalem to finalize the interrogation process. They've already observed him. There's something that we need to watch in this man. They've already debated with him, encountered him, and they've concluded he's not submissive to us, therefore we must get rid of him. We must reject him, and we must see that he is not continuing to raise problems among our people. Now here they are with Yeshua, and he does a messianic miracle. Not just a miracle, but a miracle that the rabbis themselves said only the Messiah would do. And the people's response is, this is the Messiah, right? Isn't it? And the Jewish leaders say, now they're forced to either accept him or reject him. He's forcing them to make a decision. And the decision they make is not merely their own personal decision. It becomes a national declaration. Because remember, the, it, the people are going to follow their leader. doesn't mean that there aren't exceptions. But it does mean that the nation now is going to be moved by the decision of their leaders, as has been the case throughout history. And so now, Yeshua pronounces, because they now reject him nationally in representation of the nation, uh, Yeshua now pronounces a special judgment on that generation, first century Israel, for being guilty of a unique sin. The unique sin is the rejection of the Messiah. So because this sin is what he calls unpardonable. And when he calls it unpardonable, he doesn't mean that it's unforgivable. What he means is the judgment that occurs because of it will not be rescinded. But it doesn't mean the individuals that committed the sin or are represented in the sin cannot be forgiven personally for that sin and accepted in his eyes as one who is saved. Okay? So this isn't like a personal sin. It's a national sin. And therefore the consequence is of a national nature, not an individual nature. So if there were Jewish leaders here that said Yeshua is not the Messiah, it would lead judgment on the nation. But that doesn't mean subsequently that individual can't say, boy, was I mistaken. Yeshua, please forgive me. And he'd be forgiven and he'd enter into heaven as a saved individual. But the nation would not be um, relieved of the consequence 
of this national sin. Does that make sense? I'm going to illustrate this by two other examples of this very thing happening. Okay? And we'll come to that. But I just want to try, try you know, the re, we see the, the term unpardonable, and so we think it means unforgivable. It doesn't mean unforgivable. It means that the consequence for their actions will not be rescinded. So what is the consequence of their action? The consequence of their action of rejecting Messiah is not eternal damnation, but it is the uh, AD, 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. That's what Yeshua is talking about. Because of Israel's national sin, there's going to be a national consequence of a very serious nature. To us, it may not seem that serious because 2,500 years later, Israel's back in the land. But if we were there at that time, and, and we're go- you'll see this, it was of a catastrophic nature unlike Israel had ever experienced up to that time and until that time, except for World War II. 1.5 million Jews were slaughtered by the Romans during the, those sieges. The largest number of Jews killed by any enemy until Hitler in World War II, 2,500 years later. So this is a very serious uh, consequence. Not only that, but every stone would be taken down, Yeshua said. Now one stone would be left standing upon another. The temple is destroyed. The worship of God in the way that God intended it is vanquished. And Israel is going to go into a worldwide dispersion. Nothing could have been much more catastrophic. And not just for 70 years, but it occurred for over 2,500 years. So sometimes it's hard to see that because it's far removed from us. And we don't realize the uh, incredible nature of this judgment. But let me just go on here for a moment. By the way, this is the only context where the unpardonable sin is made reference to. So in order to understand it, it has to be understood in this context. Okay? So this is where we get it from. So we're going to talk about this in a moment. So by definition, what is this unpardonable sin? Here's the here's definition that uh, I was given. The unpardonable sin is the national rejection by Israel of the Messiahship of Yeshua while he was present on the earth on the basis of the accusation that he was demon-possessed. That's what the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is not rejecting Messiah. The unpardonable sin is the national rejection by Israel of the Messiahship of Yeshua. And that occurred while Yeshua is on the earth. And it occurred on the basis of believing that the miracle he performed was um, due to demon possession. So let me just highlight the key points of this definition. One is, it's a national rejection. Not an individual rejection. Individuals do not commit this sin. It's a national rejection represented by the Jewish leaders over the nation, not of the individuals. Second thing is, it has to do with Israel. It has nothing to do with Gentiles whatsoever. It has to do with Israel's unique relationship to the Lord and the Messiah's unique relationship to them and his unique manifestation of himself as their Messiah. So it is a unique sin that has to do with Israel nationally, not individually. It has to do with Israel, not Gentiles. 
It has to do with the Messiahship of Yeshua while he was present on the earth, demonstrating his Messiahship. It has nothing to do with revelation of what he did through his word. And uh, lastly, it has to do with the accusation of demon possession. So, now let me just finish this uh, up here, Mitch, and then we'll come back. So there are four ramifications of this definition. So let me mention them to you. Number one, this is a national sin, not an individual sin. Number two, this is a sin that's unique to the Jewish generation of Yeshua's day. It's not, it's not applicable to all subsequent Jewish generations. It's limited to the generation when Yeshua was present on the earth doing his miracles. Not for all Jews of all time through all generations. When he mentions it won't be forgiven in this age, that means the present generation, they're going to go into judgment, or the age to come means that this generation, as a generation, is not going to experience the Messianic kingdom either. And there are parallels to this that I'll share in a moment. Thirdly, uh, that means this is not a sin that any other nation can commit. It's a sin that's relevant to Israel and Israel only. And fourthly, the commitment of the impardonable sin by this, this generation, that is that first century generation, meant two things for that generation. It means that the offer of the Messianic kingdom is now withdrawn and will not be offered to that generation. So when Messiah came... John and Yeshua both said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? It means they were offering the messianic kingdom. And if they would have acknowledged him, Yeshua said, John would have been Elijah, and the kingdom would have been inaugurated. How would Messiah die for our sins, and how all that would have been unraveled, we no don't know, because it's not told to us. But we do know that the offer of the kingdom is bona fide, genuine, and that when he offered it, if Israel accepted him, and if the leaders here acknowledged him when they said, isn't this the son of David? The kingdom would have been established. But in light of the fact that that did not happen, and Israel's leaders did reject him, that means the offer of the kingdom is off the table. Yeshua is no longer offering the kingdom. It is now too late. It's not going to happen. For this generation. What Yeshua is going to do is to wait for a generation that will desire it. And that generation will be the generation that will enter into the kingdom. But this generation to whom he came and to whom he offered the kingdom, he says, will not enter the kingdom in this age or the age to come. In other words, this generation is done doesn't mean individuals in that generation will not experience the kingdom, because the disciples will. But it means that generation as a nation will not enter the kingdom. I'm going to give you a parallel in a minute, but just keep that thought uh, in mind. The second thing this means, the commitment of the pardonable sin, means two things for that generation. It meant that the kingdom was now rescinded. They're not going to enter the kingdom. And secondly, that generation was now under a special divine judgment. A judgment that will hit that generation, which it does in 70 AD when the Romans attack Jerusalem. The focus is on the physical judgment now hanging over the nation. 
So once the covenant people have reached the point of no return, which is what Matthew 12 and Mark 3 is recording. That's why it's the most important passage in the account of Messiah. Once they've reached that point, no amount of repenting, is what Yeshua is saying, can change the judgment that will be unleashed. They can repent and be restored to him personally, but it's not going to change what's going to happen to the nation. Now, the events of, of this paragraph have parallels in Israel's history. And let me share a couple. In Numbers chapters 13 and 14, we have Israel's sin at Kadesh Barnea. By the way, that's the basis for what goes on here. I'll show you why. At Kadesh Barnea, which is on the border of Egypt and the Promised Land, the border of Egypt means the Sinai Peninsula border, not Egypt by, by the uh, Suez Canal, but on the other side of Egypt. Kadesh Barnea is right there near the Negev. It was there, you remember, Moses sent out the 12 spies. And when the 12 spies were sent out, all 12 agreed on one thing, that the land is flowing with milk and honey. And it's a good land. They disagreed on whether or not they could take the land. Only two felt they could take the land. Ten of them felt they could not. As a result of that uh, division, a massive rebellion breaks out against Moses and Aaron. So bad, read it, that Moses and Aaron's life was threatened and jeopardized until God moved in to protect them. When God enters into that scene, he enters by pronouncing a judgment on that generation. And the judgment on that generation is the offer to enter the promised land is off the table. That generation is not going into the promised land. You will wander in the wilderness and you will die. Not even Moses entered the promised land. The two who were faithful did. They still wandered for 40 years. They couldn't just take off and say, hey, oh, guys, enjoy you know, the, uh, the sand, but we're going in. They, too, got caught up in the judgment, had to experience the 40-year wandering, but at the end of it, that generation that came out of Egypt did not enter, except for those two. God permitted the next generation, a generation that would be responsive to God, under Joshua's leadership, to enter the promised land. So the offer of the promised land was withdrawn from that generation coming out of Egypt. It was offered to a later generation. And the book of Numbers is Moses' most brilliant of all his writings. is the book of Deuteronomy. Broken down into three sections. And that is his message to the next generation. Don't be like that first generation that came out of Egypt that died in the wilderness. Be responsive to God's command that you will live long in the land. Is essentially what his message is. He repeats the past. He tells them what happened. Tells them of God's uh, uh, glory. And says, follow the Lord and trust Him. And enter the land and enjoy it. By the way, Numbers 14 also tells us that the people repented after God stipulated the judgment. And even some tried to enter the promised land and, and were killed. But it says in Numbers 14, the people repented 
And then in verse 20, it says that God forgave their sin. However, they were not spared the physical consequences of dying in the wilderness and not entering the promised land. So they could personally be forgiven for their sin, but they could not be spared the national consequences for their sin and thus experience the judgment. It's the same thing that's going on here. The individuals can personally be forgiven if they had a change of heart. In Acts chapter 6, if I'm not mistaken, it says a whole host of Levites turned to the Lord and were forgiven of their sin. But it didn't mean that 70 AD was not going to happen. And it didn't mean that the believers were not going to get caught up in it either. By the way, you see that as well. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they too were taken in captivity into Babylon. So was Ezekiel. Jeremiah died. These men were righteous men of God. They, they endure the national suffering, because they're part of the nation, even though they personally were not sinners in rejecting God and deserving, quote-unquote, of that judgment, because they were following God. But they too, like the nation, because they're part of the national entity, experience the judgment. By the way, for every Jewish person that's not in the land of Israel that's here, the same thing's happened to us. We are faithful. We know Messiah. We embrace Him. But we're in the diaspora, which is part of the 70 AD destruction of the city, the judgment of God. And while I'm not personally, we're not personally guilty of anything that happened 2,000 years ago, we have borne and are bearing the consequence of our national leader's decision back in those days. And that's why we're here in the diaspora. Though faithful, we as a nation are experiencing the judgment of God, though we're not personally culpable or unforgiven for what transpired. Same sort of thing. There's another uh, experience of this, let me just mention, is Second Kings 23 and Second Chronicles 24, the days of Manasseh. Manasseh was the most cruel king Jerusalem ever had ever had the greatest amount of blood of the blood of righteous Jewish people was shed during his reign Solomon's temple was turned into a center of idolatry during his reign Manasseh restored if you can call it that or resorted to human sacrifices uh, during his reign they reached a point of no return and God decreed the Babylonian destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple and the 70 year captivity toward the end of Manasseh's life he did repent and he became a saved man he was followed by his son's reign one of the most righteous kings in Israel Josiah and because of Josiah and Josiah brought revival to Israel but because of Josiah's righteousness the calamity did not hit during his reign but after his death the Babylonians came, they destroyed Jerusalem, the temple, and the 70 year captivity occurred. Even though there were righteous men living at that time. Matthew chapter 12 and Mark 3 is another recording of that same sort of national sin that is not necessarily individual, but has its impact. And that's the rejection of the Messiah. Now, just before I get you back... What time, what time is it? 8.47. Okay, I want to conclude uh, just paragraph 62 and I'll be happy. 
Mitch. So if I can... It, Yes, because rather than attributing Messiah's power of healing by means of the Spirit of God that is energizing him, it is attributing his work not to the Spirit of God, but to the work of a demon. In this case, Beelzebub, the prince of demons. With respect to what's just transpired. So I think when he says, speak, speaking with regard to what's happened against the Son of Man, having done this by the power of God, by the power of the Spirit, in demonstration that the kingdom of heaven has come unto you. I would say we're probably using the term, you're using the term in two different ways. Blaspheming of the Holy Spirit or blaspheming of God in sort of a general uh, disregard, and that's probably too light a word, disregard for God's activity. I think when Yeshua is using the term here, he's using it in a more precise and more particular manner. And I think it, it is further reinforced not only by the things that I said, but by what he's going to say in the next section. Because if you notice in verse Matthew 12 now, verse 41, 42, and 45, the focus is on this generation, this generation, this evil generation. And so the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit, which I think is equivalent to the phrase unpardonable sin, I think they mean the same thing and are referring to the same thing, namely the attributing of the miracle Yeshua did to the power of Beelzebub, the basis for rejecting him as of the Messiah nationally by the leaders is what is all in play here. And that's why the, this generation is so focused on. And that's why, by the way, that is the key phrase right out of Deuteronomy um, that appears, I don't know how many times, uh, I think 30, 40 times or more in the book of Deuteronomy to make the same sort of demarcation. This generation's died in the wilderness, and he says to the new generation, don't be like this generation. And thus, their sin is uniquely theirs, and not, uh, not the generation that's going to go into the wilderness. So that's why I would, I would not make it general to describe what some have done when they say, anytime we attribute, you know, things. Yeah.
But I think the difference there is that here Yeshua is presenting himself, presenting himself as the Messiah with the offer of the kingdom. In the tribulation period, that's not happening. He's not present. He's not demonstrating his Messiahship. And he's not offering the kingdom uh, in any way, shape, or form. I'm not disagreeing that blasphemy is occurring, but not what's going on here. This is a very unique moment for which the Messiah came among Israel, which was to offer the kingdom. And now it's being rejected, which is going to change the Lord's total scenario and way of doing ministry. Everything changes. Let me go on to the next section and you'll see what I'm trying to say. Because as a result of this, everything about Yeshua's ministry from this point on changes dramatically. So let me just uh, mention that. Because I like, and then we can talk after. But this way if people need to go. Uh, in paragraph 62, on page 62, Matthew chapter 12, it says, uh, Yeshua then is interrupted. And all that's transpired. And now as he starts talking about this unpardonable sin, meaning judgment is set, 70 AD is going to occur. He hasn't gotten specific yet, but he will in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Luke 21, 24 and 25 in Matthew, Luke 21 and Mark 13 are all going to be specific about the coming judgment that's going to hit and the ultimate, his ultimate return to bring the final deliverance. But that's where we're headed toward. We're not there yet. But here, he's interrupted uh, regarding his speaking about this national sin and the ramifications of it. So in verse 36, it says, Then certain of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Master, we would see a sign from you. So, okay, here he's just performed this messianic sign. They've rejected him and rejected it. And now he said, judgment is set. And he's talking about judgment. In the middle of that judgment, they said, hey, we'd like to see a sign from you. So now Messiah changes his uh, point. And he's going to address their question. And then he's going to come back to what he was saying about judgment. And he addresses their question and he says in verse 39, But he answered and said unto them, An evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And what he means by that is, he's just like the generation that died in the wilderness was an evil and adulterous generation for failing to trust God to go into the land. Now this generation that's following its leaders, failing to trust Messiah and to place their faith in him, He's saying what you guys now are asking, speaking to the leaders now, is a sign. But I've given you the sign and you've rejected it. That's his point. And now he says, but nevertheless, I'm going to provide another sign. And he says, and there shall no sign be given to this generation. He's talking about this first century generation. But the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Messiah now says, you're asking for a sign. There's one more sign that will be given to the nation. And it's the sign of Jonah, which is the sign of resurrection. And because Jonah, as you remember, jumps ship, gets into the whale. In my opinion, he dies. And, and the Lord, and there's difference of opinion on that, but I think he dies. And the Lord resurrects him from the dead, as it were. When you read the description of him in chapter 2, you'll see he says he goes down, down, down. The weeds begin to choke him. 
He is uh, at the very roots of the mountains under the earth. And it says that the very life is choked out of him. And then he's swallowed by the whale or the big fish. And then the Lord, in the midst of his agony, he cries out to God. And God has him restored to life. From Jonah's point of view, three days, three nights, uh, he, in effect, what he's saying is, I died. And the Lord brought me up from the deep. This is another way of saying, up from the dead. So it's a sign of resurrection. And on three occasions, this sign of resurrection will be given to Israel. The first is the raising of Lazarus. The second is the raising of Yeshua. And the third will be the raising of the two witnesses that you read of in the book of Revelation, chapter 14 or so, 11. Chapter 11. So those are two, three signs of resurrection. And what's interesting is, in each one of those occurrences, you'll find faith is seen among the Jewish people. When Lazarus is raised from the dead, it says, and many believed on him. When Yeshua is raised from the dead, many that rejected him believe on him. And when the two witnesses are raised in Revelation 11, it says many believed on, on the Lord. So the sign of resurrection will be a final sign given, and it does have the effect of leading people individually, not the nation as a whole, but people individually to life. So Yeshua now addresses the sign issue, then he comes back to the judgment issue. Take a look at this in verse 41. Now when he talks about judgment, he says, The men of Nineveh shall stand up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For they, rep they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, a greater than Jonah is here. He says, The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, a greater than Solomon is here. His point is, is, is this. He says, uh, um, he utilizes two examples of Gentiles that exhibit faith as a means of pronouncing judgment on this generation. The men of Nineveh, Assyrians, will rise up at the time of the judgment and they will stand in judgment on this generation because at the time Jonah preached, they were responsive to Jonah. In other words, they had less light than this generation that saw all the miracles of Messiah. And they were responsive to the lesser light. They were less responsive to the greater light. And thus, the people of Nineveh will rise up in judgment of this generation, the first century generation of Israel during the time of Messiah, because with all the light they were given, they refused to respond to God. With all the little light the Ninevites were given, they responded. He says, secondly, it's like the queen of Sheba. She came to see Solomon in all his glory, saw it, and was moved to respond to the living God based on the wisdom of Solomon. And he said, in your generation, one much wiser than Solomon, you've had much more revelation given to you, but you are not being responsive to it. And therefore, these Gentiles, Queen of Sheba, will rise up in judgment over this generation because with the little light they had, they exhibited faith, and you did not. Then he concludes by saying this, and then we're done. He says, verse 43, tells a story. The unclean spirit, when he's gone out of the man, he passes through waterless places, seeks rest, finds it not. 
Then he says, I will return into my house where I came. And when he's come, he finds it empty, swept, and garnished. Then he goes, takes from himself seven other spirits more evil than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of the man becomes more worse than the first. Now, this is important. He's not talking about individuals. He says, even so shall it be unto this evil generation. Here's his point. When this generation began, this first century generation, when Messiah came, when it began, it began with the preaching of John, the herald. By means of John's ministry, that generation was swept and cleaned and garnished. Just like the house that is swept and cleaned and garnished. Then the Messiah came, who could have filled that house with his presence. But, as they just did, they rejected him. So what has happened? The last state of the house is worse than the first. In the case of the story, it's only a story. The demon is swept out, just like under John's ministry. Evil was swept from Israel and truth was present. But rather than fill the house with truth, the truth of Messiah, they left the house vacant. So what happened? All those things that were swept out, they say, you know, the house is nice and clean. Let's go back. And you know what? They bring some friends with them so that we can really enjoy this dwelling presence place together. What Yeshua is saying is the nation of Israel in the first century was swept clean. John came. He preached repentance. He baptized. He called people to respond to God and people were responding. And then the Messiah came and he's ready to fill the house, but you refuse. So what is he saying? Under Roman domination, they had to pay tribute to Rome. Israel had to pay tribute to Rome. But they, were, but they allowed Israel to retain their national identity. Jerusalem was standing. The temple was arrayed in all its glory. And Israel had an autonomous government, as it were, in the Sanhedrin. But 40 years after Yeshua spoke these words, because of their rejection of him as Messiah, the Roman legions would invade the land. And after a four-year war and a two-year siege, Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is torn down. Not one stone is standing upon another. And the Jewish people are dispersed all over the world. And an autonomous government is no longer a reality for them. In other words, the last stage of Israel was worse than the first stage when Yeshua or John first began their ministry. That's what Messiah, I believe, is talking about. Now, in our day and age, we're seeing God restoring the fortunes of Israel. The judgment hit, 70 AD. That's what he's talking about. It's done. It's in the past. Ratifications of it are still being experienced today. The Messianic kingdom is not yet dawned. Most of our people are still unbelieving. Those of us who do believe, the majority of us, are not even in our own land. The effects and consequences are far and large. And only now things are beginning to turn as the people are returning. But the fate of Israel for those 2,500 years was a lot far worse than it was at the beginning when, okay, Israel was dominated by Rome, but at least that's where they were. And they still had all of their, those glories, the temple, Jerusalem, Sanhedrin. But all of that would be gone. As Messiah said. Remember in Matthew 24, his disciples said, look at the temple, isn't it beautiful? Messiah says, not one stone is going to be standing upon another. And uh, that is still the plight of the temple today. It's not there. 
And the result, the reason for that is because of the national rejection. That's why this passage is so critical. From this point on, we're going to see some very interesting things uh, regarding the life of Messiah that's triggered because of this, this event. Well, let's pray, and then if people want to talk, we can stay, stick around for a little bit more. Father, we thank you for your word to us this day. What a thrilling passage. It helps to clear up, in my mind at least, a lot of uh, ambiguities concerning the meaning of these very uh, unique passages and the way that it oftentimes is understood in some of the local uh, churches uh, throughout the world uh, seems to fail to take into consideration the uniqueness of these words with regard to the Jewish people. So in light of this truth, our prayer is that, Father, you would be merciful to your people Israel, you would restore the fortunes of Israel, you would open the hearts of many of our people in this day and age and enabling them to uh, respond to the words and work of Messiah as they are inscripturated for us. And may you turn many of our people's hearts toward you. And may we, finally, Lord, I would pray, may we be catalysts in that. Use us to share your presence, your love, and your truth, and your redemptive grace uh, with Jewish people around us, we ask. We pray in Yeshua's name.